Growth stories, life lessons, turning points, service to others, truth, no bullshit. Adding value, no smoke and mirrors, being the pressure, third down and 10, win or learn, always the underdog with a chip on your shoulder. These are the things that I think about when I talk to this group. From service academy fleet leaders, NFL players, NASCAR drivers, tech gurus, private equity, small business, big business, to the entrepreneurs making the way of the future, winning at all costs with uncompromised integrity, paying the price of admission. Let's go. Evan Beard, everybody. Beardo, uh, which most people know him as is Beardo, uh, Navy football senior 05, right? Class of six. Yeah, 06. There we go. Now an art dealer living in New York City. Uh, very interesting profession. I can't wait to dive into that because it's definitely unique out of the group so far. You're the first one into that. Uh, raised out of Youngtown, Ohio. After graduation, went Navy Intel. Did that for a few years, transitioned, and did three years of consulting at, uh, and I always mispronounce this, Deloitte. Is that how you say it? Yeah, Deloitte. Deloitte. Uh, transitioned from there into Bank of America. Did that for seven years as a managing director, uh, head of art services, and then moved into what you're doing now, now president of Level & Co. Level & Company? Yeah, part of a broader um, company. Discuss a little bit. Gotcha. Interesting how that works. I'm managing director of at uh, Bank of America for Arts and Services. And it's like, ooh, there's some, there's some things to be had, right? And then made a change. <laughs> Interesting fact. Uh, you were Nehemiah's agent for the past 15 years. That's pretty cool. Yeah. Um, um, I, it was a weird situation, to say the least. And we'll get there. I can't wait to hear more about it. Um, got three kiddos. You are heavily engaged in the art market. Um, you know, watching documentaries, documentary buff, student of the game, reading, and esoteric YouTube topics. What is that? You know, when you say esoteric YouTube topics, what do you what do you mean? I don't have cable television, so instead I go into wormholes on weird topics on YouTube and like architectural documentaries or the history of this or that. So, uh, yeah, I get stuck in that sometimes. Nice. And I think the memories will, that I'm going to bring up are, will kind of take us down that path with uh, how smart this guy is. You got three degrees, bachelor's in economics from the academy. Uh, moved to Master of Arts at St. John's College and Great Books. Um, and then across the pond, master's from Oxford University. That's pretty cool. So here are the, here are the memories I got for Evan Beard, everybody. Um, Mikyokaitis, another 2006 grad, uh, wide receiver. Ask you about the day you threw the roll. <laughs> That legend continues to grow. Yeah, we could definitely delve into that if you'd like. <laughs> Anything else before I move on to the next one? No, look, I mean, that uh, we could go down that wormhole now if you'd like, unless you want to address it later. <laughs> I could set the record straight. Well, um, do it now. Let's do it now. So in an earlier age, a more enlightened, an unenlightened age, this is, um, you know, before our current age of political correctness, uh, at the Naval Academy, the football team ate together. And if a female would walk into their environment, all hell would break loose. It was sort of like, you know, this partly ironic sense of boorishness. It was partly just, you know, growing up at the Naval Academy and a lot of very immature men making a scene and making, you know, you know, asses out of themselves. And, you know, once in a while things get thrown and um, it just so happened that one of these young ladies was the daughter of uh, one of the captains on the yard who I forget which one, but he was pretty high up there. 
And uh, so she made her way into the environment, all hell breaks loose, and someone, perhaps it was me, tossed a dinner roll from a very far distance. And almost, if you ever saw the Seinfeld episode where that guy gets sort of hit with a, a little bit of you know, spittle and, you know, it bounces off, you know, the guy into Kramer. Um, and this became a thing. Phone calls were made and it made its way to Paul Johnson. Um, Paul Johnson thought, well, we need to make an example of this. I was a plebe at the time. So he huddled us all out on a Thursday afternoon. This became known as Black Thursday, one of the darker periods of anyone's time at the Academy, and put us through two hours of hell. Uh, we had multiple players quit. Uh, this was, you know, Paul uh, exerting his vengeance on us. He was still in, I think, year one or two uh, earlier in my tenure. He wanted to make an example that, you know, the, the new sheriff in town. And uh, yeah, so that, that became sort of in everyone's <laughs> mind over the last 15 years within the alumni group. The story has grown and grown and grown. And, you know, someone was murdered in King Hall and, you know, I got away with it. And, you know, 10 players quit. And, you know, so the, the story continues to grow. I'm sure there'll be a book about it one day. Um, I did not get disciplined. Uh, I had some discussions with the team and I was perfectly willing. Should I just go up there and hone up to it? And they said, no, you'll get kicked out of the academy. But it was a glorious day. Uh, fun to look back on. Uh, it was it was stupid on my part, but it's made for great stories. Nice. Uh Adam Horn, have you listened to Adam Horn's episode yet? I have not. Okay. He covered this and he said, there's someone that re that continues to remain nameless on the role story. So I think huh. you just pulled that one out. I think you just exposed that one. So I thought it was just common <laughs> uh, knowledge that I was the culprit. <laughs> Nice. All right. Another uh, Mickey Okaitis, uh memory was uh, he said you, you were like you were 21, but you acted like you were 40. Um, that the guys go downtown, saw you in the cigar shop, talking with the older guys, like at the cigar place, making conversation. Hey, I'm here to learn something from you guys. Like that was that was pretty cool. Uh, it was fun to hear that. Yeah. Um, like a, an old man stuck that you would have heated arguments uh, surrounding politics with the guys. Yeah, yeah you know, and, I think uh, it was that you put a. Go ahead. I think there's a minor delay here, but yeah, it was, I think, a period of just as the Iraq war was getting started, Fox News was in its infancy, and it was a good time to have political debates. So <laughs> lots of dynamic political debates on the team i'm sure i remember doing going through that in high school so it makes sense <laughs> uh that you put a life-size cut out of president bush in the house that y'all uh lived at <laughs> and it made bobby mack a little mad yes <laughs> uh Again, uh, not because we were great fans of President Bush, although I thought he was a decent guy, more so that Bobby and his young wife at the time tended to be on you know, the left part of the political spectrum, which I completely respect. And if there was one way to get under their skin was, would be to have a life-size cutout of George W. Bush. So if you're an immature college guy trying to get under your roommate's skin, that's what you do. Awesome. Uh, he also said that you're a great friend, a stud player, that you tore your uh, ACL for the second or third time, um, played some no's, um, that you were known as Beardo the Weirdo. <laughs> Everything's true there except the stud player part. I was luckily part of the, stop know, it. jokingly, worst recruiting class in the history of the Naval Academy, in my opinion. I don't know if, about if, that. No, I mean, look, there's some good friends in that class, but, you know, Navy was coming off an 0-10 season, Charlie Weatherby fired, Paul Johnson gets hired fairly late in the cycle, and he has to put together like a last second class, so 
you know, all some of us who came in direct got these calls and, you know, we show up and there was a great class prior to us and a really strong class, you know, right behind us. But we were like that transition class. And I think Mick Titus and Lamar Owens and Jeremy Chase were really the only three from my class that got serious playing time. But yeah, I snuck in. Um, I was, you know, I had a uh, an unremarkable career as a football player there, um, and I was lucky to be there. Awesome. All right, Jake Biles. He said you're eccentric, intellectual, bookish off the field, and a master instigator. And... Uh, Stir of the pot. <laughs> Makes sense. Yes, unfortunately. Um, yeah, look, uh, college hijinks and uh, you know all all those guys. I mean, I, I think it was like a different era. I, I feel like back then, part of your raison d'etre of existence at a place like the Naval Academy was to tease and try and provoke your good friends um, in. In a good-natured way, but yes, I was guilty of all of that. <laughs> Last one, Dan Gibbon. Uh, he remembers you knocking his helmet off in spring practice. Um, they all had good summer trainings, summer school times together. That uh, you had an epic final presentation speech in the navigation class. Do you remember that speech? I do not, unfortunately. But Dan's a great okay. guy and a good friend, and he was in my wedding. Nice. Well, he remembers that. Um, that you are highly respected in the locker room for your aggressiveness and talent, but moreover, uh, for your knowledge of the wide, wide range of topics, finance, history, religion, politics, you name it. Um, that you had a lot of say in the locker room debates and guys would like challenge you on those debates and you were usually correct. <laughs> you would reference like 20 books. Um, you reading all the time and these guys would just laugh, but no, like, eh, he's probably right. Like, and he was, um, so that was kind of cool. He also when mentioned that you passed the securities licensing exam while at the Naval Academy. Yeah, no, I, I got into a little bit of finance there. But look, when you're not a star player or one of the marquee players, you can focus on. So those are the, uh, that's your intro and memories. Um, dude, tell us your story. Tell us more about you. From, yeah. you know, beginning high school through the academy to where you're at today, like the entire thing. We want to hear where you came from. Yeah, look, grew up in Ohio, a post-industrial steel town, Youngstown, Ohio, famous for uh, coal and steel, um, but lost that industry in the seventies and eighties. So it was kind of a depressed town, but, you know, had a good legacy of sports in Northeast Ohio, everyone from LeBron James to, you know, lots of great football players had come up through there over the years. Um, as I said, went to the Academy, kind of got lucky. The Academy needed to throw together a recruiting class and, uh, Jeff Munkin, the current head coach at army, who was, a uh, uh, an assistant coming into Navy at the time showed up at my uh, my school, and then we had dinner. And he said, "Look, there's this place uh, down in Annapolis. It's a beautiful environment, and you get to play football, but you got to join the Navy." And you look, I, I knew nothing about the Navy, but uh, thought it was an interesting opportunity. I mean, I probably would have went to Akron or Youngstown State or something like that, and um, so you know, dove into it completely unprepared. I was not a great student in high school, and the academy hit me pretty hard, especially academically. Um, you know, played football at the academy for a few years, you know, got playing time and lettered a couple years, but completely unremarkable career, had some injuries, and ultimately decided not to play my senior year. It just, you know, two ACLs. And, and I think that moment for me was kind of interesting because, you know, sports had been my kind of meal ticket and focus up to that point. And it allowed me, you know, the soul searching that senior year to completely, you know, distance myself from football and, you know, sports and completely dive into other interests, uh, you know, behavioral economics and politics and, you know, just reading things I never would have read. 
I, you know, I didn't quite know what to do with myself. You know, I, football was my life up until then. And, you know, during this time, I also played a lot of tennis. And my tennis partner was Ken Niamatololo, who at the time was, you know, the, I think the offensive coordinator, assistant head coach. And, you know, so I stay on at the academy and, uh, you know, for six months was a GA um, focused on recruiting. And we continued to play tennis, Kenny and I. And so I go off into Navy Intel and, you know, I'm you know, doing that whole thing and not really on a ship, but, you know, focused on, you know, the Middle East a little bit, but mostly stationed in D.C. And Kenny gives me a call, uh, you know, after he's hired. And he says, Evan, I want you to find me an agent. So I start to interview agents. I got the agent for Jim Trestle to, you know, have a meeting with Kenny. And uh, Jim Trestle was the coach of Ohio State at the time, coming off in a a national championship a few years earlier. I I think I threw another, you know, agent at him. And he ultimately came back to me. And I think I'm 22 or 23 at the time. And he said, look, why don't you just be my agent? And, you know, why don't you do my deal? And so this was right after Kenny's first year. They went eight and five. They, I think, went to like that little bowl game in Washington, D.C. And he had, yeah, he had a, uh, an un, not a great contract in that first year. You know, he, what is he going to do? Turn it down. So Navy had all the leverage. So I'm a 23-year-old, and I, I remember the night going in and sitting down with Chet Gladchuck, the athletic director, and I even remember Chet, like, you know, not taking me too seriously as he shouldn't have, and not to say, like, our first deal was a remarkable deal. I forget what it was, like a five-year thing or something like that, um, but that was... and. That was actually good fun. I don't know if I was supposed to do that while I was in the military. I had asked people. And most people said, no, you shouldn't do that. I mean, but it, it set me on really a, a nice 13 or 14 year run with Kenny. And so kind of like a side hustle. I never took another client really. Oh, I had conversations with others. But, you know, so we did the we redid the deal f- probably four times while he was there and it was just so much fun being part of that and, uh, you know, keeping one foot squarely in Navy football and strategizing with him and, you know, you know, fielding all his interests and offers from other schools. And um, so that had really allowed me to stay in Navy football, even more so than probably when I was playing at the academy. Nice. And uh, so that was great. Awesome. Real quick, I got to ask, because I did read an article on you that was written this year about, um, you know, your, your path. And you had the opportunity to go to a whole bunch of other Ivy league schools at a high school. And you had a lot of different, you know, offers there, but you decided to go to Navy. Why? What made you commit to that path? Well, an Ivy league school to me was not an Ivy league school at that moment. It was a division two team with a football program. So I, I had no academic prowess at all. Um, again, a completely unremarkable academic history in high school. So, you know, I even forget some of those schools and probably some Patriot schools like Lehigh and Lafayette and those types. So to me, it was just a chance to play for a team that played against Notre Dame and the Army Navy game. And, you know, back then Navy's schedule had NC State on it and all these teams. So it was really, you know, night and day. Um, also, Ivy League programs, I don't know if they gave full rides, so the chance to kind of get my uh, academic career paid for. But no, and there was, there was a guy that played at Navy uh, named um, Andy Zetz, who had went to my high school. He was actually a senior when I was a freshman, and you know he really was influential. He gave me some advice, and you know I looked up to him all through high school and respected him a lot, so kind of followed in his footsteps. Gotcha. Cool. So you, you go through the Academy, you end up, you know, being a Nehemiah's agent there, and then you get into Navy Intel. How does that whole thing go for you after graduation, you get into Navy Intel? what did you do there? Yeah, I would say, again, it was a five- From what you can say. Well, look, I mean, <laughs> I, I wish I had these crazy stories of sort of like, you know, 
you know, super secret missions in the Middle East. I will say I was lucky in the sense that I got to focus on the Middle East. So I, I went into a group that did bilateral negotiations with um, Middle East governments. And I was a very junior officer at the time. So I was on a bigger staff um, and, you know, ultimately was on the Navy staff and they sent me around the Middle East. So it was, it was, I had a lot of nice travel. I stayed in a lot of nice hotels and <laughs> I can't say I was ever in harm's way. Uh, I don't know if, you know, there, there, there's never going to be a book written about my time in Navy Intel, but I learned a lot. You know, it was really interesting to understand, you know, what the Israelis think of the Saudis and why Pakistan views us through the lens of India and, you know, why Iran is angling towards Qatar and has a rivalry with Saudi Arabia and why Kuwait is such an ally based on our history. So that was very interesting. And I enjoyed every minute of it. Uh, again, fairly unremarkable four years. I mean, everyone on this podcast probably did more heroic things and probably had a bigger impact on our national security. But I thought it was great. Gotcha. What was your biggest learning out of that whole experience in Navy Intel? I think the one that you walked away with that was like, man, that was whoa! I did not really realize that. And yes, crazy. I, I think the biggest thing I learned is there are no permanent allies; there are only permanent interests. And the other thing, nations don't operate because of trust. They operate because of self-interest. And if you look at foreign policy through that lens, we are not friends with the UK because we have a great history or because we can trust them. We have interests that align as open democracies, and we have policy interests towards other nations that align because of our self-interest. So when you look at the Middle East, it was always interesting to me. Until I became a Navy Intel officer, I would always wonder why Israel was so aligned with the United Arab Emirates, or they had really good relations with the Saudi government, where if you took a step back and you looked at like their you know, religious uh, differences and their cultural differences, but it all comes down to self-interest. If a nation will be aligned with another nation, not out of history, not out of trust, but completely alignment of interests. And the moment those interests unalign themselves, then nations will cease to be aligned on an issue. So anyone who tells you, oh, we have a great trustful relationship with another country, it's going to depend on what issue. And that trust will disappear overnight the moment our interests are unaligned on that issue. Yeah. What can you give to me? Right. It seems like a... So I became I less I idealistic. Kind of understood that yeah, earlier. Look, I but, think I came out yeah. of the George Bush school, um, coming out of the academy, and maybe you know slightly shifted more to the Kissinger realist form of foreign policy. Not completely, but um, so I lost a little bit of idealism. And I think, look, you know, nations calculate foreign policy based on their own self-interest, and. If you understand that, you can disabuse yourself of a lot of like flowery language around democracy and other things. Awesome. Good stuff. I'm loving it already. Um, all right. So you move on from, from the Navy Intel world and then you transition into the civilian workforce. How did that go for you? Yeah, look, for me, I... I I did go to um, Oxford for like a transition year, studied over there, um, you know, studied some economics, primarily just because I thought, you know, most people pick a, a college and focus on something that they want to study or, you know, they want to go into investment banking. You know, for me, honestly, it, it was to me a really interesting opportunity to go to England and study at a historic university and just, you know, lose myself in a really interesting environment and go to the debates and go into London. So it was almost like a gap year from the military. And, you know, my hair got a little longer and, you know, I, I hung out with people from, you know, different parts of society. And, and it, it, I think it calmed me down and took a little bit of my edge off, at least from a military perspective. 
But, you know, it probably wasn't the smartest move in terms of getting a job back in the United States. Here am I over in England. You know, it's a one-year program, so I didn't do like a two-year MBA where you do a summer internship at a hedge fund or a private equity firm or an investment bank or a consulting firm. So I did kind of use my kind of Navy background to get in with Deloitte. I knew the moment I got there, I did not want to do federal consulting and be sort of stuck in the federal government helping them reduce costs or something. So I, you know, a year in moved to New York City and you know, started to work. Hey, re- real quick, I got a butt in there. Reducing the federal government's costs. Well, I would say this. What can you, you say know, about that? There's a lot of consulting firms that get hired by the federal government to make them more efficient. The federal government does typically, except for the post office, doesn't have revenue. So a consultant who's looking at the federal government in any way is almost always looking at some sort of cost reduction process. And when you get in there and realize that this, you know almost every federal um, government branch in any part of the government has every incentive to spend every dime they make. Otherwise, that line item gets reduced in the next year's budget. So you're pushing a rock up a hill. And so what a lot of federal consulting from at least what I've seen, and I'm not disparaging it at all, is it becomes just, you know, you get a button seat and you end up doing a job that, you know, is a little bit less expensive than the government than having, you know, a full federal employee. So, I quickly realized I wanted to get to New York, and so I, I shifted up there and started to work with some private banks on strategy and do some other things. Um, but what I figured out, both at Oxford and during that time, is you know I started to go to museums, and I was fascinated by the art market. Uh, I don't know why. I, I, I was not fascinated by art per se. I just loved this idea that this market existed where um, something that you have no need for um, could sell for millions of dollars and people would buy it for social status and prestige and cultural capital. And, and it, it fascinated me. I, I thought the behavioral economics around art and the art market and the auction world was really interesting. So I got up to New York and I was very lucky to form a little practice within Deloitte to focus on this market. And so Bank of America hired my team to build out a strategy for U.S. trust at the time, which was their private banking arm. And that strategy was how do we differentiate U.S. trust? Um, U.S. trust used to be the largest trust company in the United States. It was bought by Bank of America right after the financial crisis or maybe right before it. And U.S. trust was lost in this big um, financial institution. And they wanted to position themselves to be more of a high-end private bank. So my team, we went in there and, you know, we spent three or four months interviewing everyone and looking at their financials and coming up with ideas. And one idea I had was, look, let's build an art services group that consisted of four things. Let's bring all the museum endowments you manage. Let's, you know, bring your art lending operation where you lend money using art as collateral. Let's launch a product called consignment services to help people sell their art. And then let's bring all the estate and trust planning around art, which is very unique. So they liked that idea and said, Evan, come build it. So uh, they hired me um, pretty quickly away from Deloitte. And I went over there and, you know, built that group out and had a lot of fun playing in the art market from a banking perspective. I think I lost a little bit of that there, but all good. We'll keep moving. So you get into the art, you know, at uh, Bank of America. Uh, you do that. Is there anything cool out of that experience? Yeah, look, Bank I mean, of America that, I found it to be remember? a really interesting environment from the, the front. I got to meet with, you know, the world's great art collectors. And these tend to be the Forbes 400. Uh, these are, you know, if you look at the wealthiest people in the world, they tend to be the biggest art collectors. So it was kind of fun getting in there and understanding what drives them to, you know, allocate in some cases a billion dollars of their net worth to art, to you know, pigment on canvas. And so working with a lot of them, we, we lent money against their collection. We, we helped them build museums. We helped them sell their art. We managed their money um, around art. And it caused me to really want to get closer to the art. Uh, and 
you know, so that is what ultimately led led me to leave Bank of America to do something a little bit more risky uh, in this new startup. Nice. I hear a lot about folks that, you know, take that risk, make that leap, take that jump from what they're doing and they got some insights into something else. And so that's kind of what it sounds like you did there. Um, what gave you the confidence to make that jump into what you're doing today? And we'll get to the rest of what you're doing today, but. Yeah, no, it's, look, it, it was a really tough decision. I loved working at Bank of America. I had, uh, my, my role had expanded and I was leading both their art services group. They had a business owner group that I led. Um, I oversaw business integration between Merrill Lynch and the private bank. Um, I oversaw their next gen strategy. So it was kind of a fun role, but I could clearly see that, you know, my career path there would really get me further and further away from the art market, which I was pretty fascinated with. And, you know, I had to leave a lot of chips on the table. I left probably a very not cushy job, but, you know, people at banks get paid pretty much regardless. And, you know, being a managing director at a big financial institution in New York City, you do good. Um, so leaving that was a stressful decision. Um, and, you know, there's this startup called Masterworks. And, you know, right now we are a billion dollar art fund. We securitize art, meaning we buy a painting for a million dollars we register it with the SEC. It becomes essentially a stock. We put it on our platform and people invest in it. And then they can trade shares in that art. Um, so I oversee you know, the secondary trading market as well as um, I oversee the actual collection and when we want to sell things. So um, we have a, a gallery on the Upper East Side, which is that Lavelle and Company, an homage to Andre Lavelle, who started the first art fund in the the late 19th century, early 20th. And look, we sell, we have $30 million Basquiat paintings. We have Picassos. We have, we have one of the great art collections in the world. And it's going to be a multi-billion dollar art collection at one point. And, and we're selling art out of it. I don't know whether this enterprise will be successful long-term. It's, and it's a very risky, we're, we're a four-year-old toddler right now. Uh, we have a nice valuation. We did a Series A. We raised about 110 million with a billion dollar valuation. So we have a chance, but like any startup, who knows? I mean, these are choppy economic waters right now. So what are you doing now? You are an art dealer, and I think you talked a little bit about it already. But like, what are your nuts and bolts? What are your you know your basics that you stay focused on now, day to day, and what you do? It's about as far removed from the military as I could have gotten. I mean, there is, I mean, interestingly, there really was, the military was kind of chapter one. And then, you know, what I'm doing now, there's zero overlap. You know, my military background, I never really talk about it because it doesn't have a lot of relation, but I took a lot of skills from the military, you know, certain disciplines that I do try and apply here. But look, my, my day to day is, my world has shrunk a little bit. I now go to a little gallery on the Upper East Side of Manhattan at 74th Street, a little townhouse. Uh, we have paintings in there, all of them worth between one and thirty million dollars. And I reach out to I reach out to the big art collectors in the world to try and sell paintings. And I, we do deals in other ways. An example: um, in two weeks, the major evening auctions will happen at Christie's and Sotheby's. So. An example of a sale for us, we have a $4.5 million painting in the Christie's sale, and it's by an artist named Yayoi Kusama, a Japanese artist. The way that we're going to sell this painting is we went to Asia. We got one of our um, partners at Christie's in Hong Kong to find a buyer for this for $4.5 million. But rather than buy the painting, he wanted to guarantee the painting and take it to auction. So what that means is it will sell at four and a half million. But if the bidding, say, goes to five or six million, that gentleman who guaranteed it will get a split of the overage above four and a half million. And for us who consigned it, we're guaranteed to get our four and a half million. Um, but if it sells for six million, we'll get also a split of that overage. And then, you know, the auction house will make a little money as well. So that's the interesting part of the art market. You know, these are 
really interesting structured deals. Uh, you know, they happen across multiple continents and we both buy and sell artwork through this fund in this way. And I find it to be very stimulating. It's also the most difficult thing I've ever done because no one needs art. No one needs to spend a million dollars on a work of art. So you need to convince them. Um, so we're in the business of desirability and making people believe they can't have what they want. Nice. Who's the most interesting person that you've met in your current field? Ooh, the most interesting. Let's see. Um, oh, most interesting. You know, look, I would say there's an inverse proportion typically to someone who's made a billion dollars and how interesting they are. Because to, to become a billionaire, you have to have the most laser-focused discipline in one niche area, and you have to dedicate your life to it. You have to be the absolute best at it. You have to have a level of stamina and focus and almost like an autistic level of you know drive on this one little area. So these entrepreneurs that have built these you know amazing empires – I initially thought these must be the most interesting people in the world. I, I, you know, you meet with them and they must just be the most fascinating people. And, you know, there are some like, you know, the Elon Musk of the world, but most of these people are the most boring, dull, focused people that you will ever meet in your life. And they have you ever met down. him? I've not met Elon Musk, but look, I, I've right. met You're on your way. Yeah. I've met a lot of the, I've met <laughs> Ken Griffin and Steve Cohen. And, you know, a lot of these, if you're, you know, you know, if you get the rank of the top Wall Street guys, not because they want to be friends with me. It's just, you know, we did their art loan at Bank of America or, you know, now we're, uh, you know, we're trying to sell them art. Gotcha. So who is the most interesting? Let's you see. The most, um, the most interesting person. Um, I... Look, the most interesting person I probably met was, you know, he's not a wealthy man. And I met him a couple times in Washington, D.C., and he's dead now. His name's Christopher Hitchens. Uh, he's a polemicist. He's a writer. And he's a combative speaker. He's a great, you know, very good debater on lots of issues. And I found him to be fascinating because... He loved to be with people who he disagreed with. Awesome. And I disagree with a lot of what he has to say, but he always made me think. And I found him very fascinating. Awesome. Made you think. Always made you think. That's so important. Awesome. Anything else on that uh, on your current role that you want to share with what you're doing? And before we keep on moving to my other questions I have. Look, I would just say startup culture is a lot more difficult than I realized. And, you know, you go from being at a big corporate corporate job and, you know, fortune 500 company, and you got a nice office and you have an assistant, you have a team and, you know, there's a marketing department to do that for you. There's a big HR department to do that. And, you know, that's just a bit, you know, going to a startup where, you don't have any of that. And, you know, you're, you're trying to build it all from the ground up. It's very humbling in a way. And you got to eat what you kill. And, the, you know, there's no safety net. And, you know, maybe there's a big reward down the line if we scale this thing up and sell it or have an IPO. But, you know, the, the odds are stacked against you. So, you know, it's been a it's been a really I've learned a lot about who I really am. And, you know, maybe I'm not as all the time is you know, love the risk. Uh, but it is, it is stimulating in a way. Cool. All right. Let's liven this thing up and tell me a good memory or story from a coach interaction at some point. Um, at Navy football, you had this one interaction or like some, someone said something or a good coach story. What do you got? 
Well, look, I mean, the, the staff was pretty stacked when we were there. I mean, you think of all the head coaches that have come out of that Navy football staff, from Paul Johnson to Jeff Munkin to Ken Niamatololo to there was a couple of the guy that went to Georgetown, the guy at Valdosta State. So almost everyone on that staff you know, became a really successful coach, either a head coach or what other. But the guy that I got a kick out of was Jeff Munkin. He was super young when we were there. And you know, I like him a lot, but there, no one said the most vile, filthy things to people at practice in Jeff Munkin. And now he's killing it at <laughs> Army. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that guy, the, the things he would say, and I'm not going to repeat any, but just I, I would get such a kick out of him because he's such like a nice, down-to-earth, like warm guy off the field. But boy, you get him on there and he's just... He's just so brutal. Get him in um, between the lines. Let's go. Yeah. And, and Paul Johnson <laughs> had a great sense of irony. You know, everything Paul said, it was it was witty and sarcastic. And, you know, I, I, he was sort of a dour guy in some ways, but, you know, he, he used humor effectively. I think you're very biting. I would agree. I would definitely agree there. Um, I also read in that article that I mentioned earlier that – you were, and you are, or were, PJ's investment manager. Yeah, for a moment, and you know, we transitioned him off to uh, another. My my father used to run a brokerage firm, uh, and I still think you know Paul is a client of Beard Financial Services in Ohio. And uh, but yeah, look, Paul and I, you know, Paul spent a lot of his days looking at the stock market and betting the horses in his office when he was at Navy. And uh, I'd go up there and we'd chat about stocks and, you know, what what companies were looking interesting. And we were like two old retirees sitting down at the villages in Florida. And, you know, ultimately said, well, look, manage some money. So I, I did. Nice. What kind of things were you looking at when you were doing that? I mean, ultimately, I put them in a very boring asset allocation model, but, you know, we were looking at individual stocks and, you know, he, he, you know, he's got, he wants to make it hurt a little bit. So he, he, in the same way he bets horses, he wants to, he wants to take a a ride on a company that's going to have a little bit of beta that's going to be volatile. So I don't know, I'm sure I gave him some not great recommendations as a, you know, 22 year old, but um, (laughs) we, we had a lot of fun. Awesome. All right. Uh, so you're super smart. I want to get your perspective on crypto. What do you think about crypto? I am more excited about the technology behind crypto, and I'm more excited on that technology as it applies to the most boring parts of life. So if Bitcoin is you know, digital currency and Ethereum is like digital oil, Really, the backbone of those cryptocurrencies, you know, the blockchain and smart contracts, I do think that's going to have a real impact on, you know, the most mundane parts of life. Take, you know, registering your vehicle. There will be a day where you're not going to have to go through that painful process of going to the DMV and, you know, almost wanting to kill yourself at the inefficiency of it all and filling out all these papers. And what you're going to have is you're going to have a non-fungible token that's going to be on the blockchain registered to your car. Um, It will have a node on the blockchain the moment it comes off the assembly line. And its chain of ownership will forever, from the moment it was created, be there. And its title will be passed. And if you want to pass your title to your son, you click and it'll just shift. So I think, you know, non-fungible tokens and, you know, some of the cryptocurrencies and I think they're going to have a huge impact on the most mundane aspects of life. I'm less bullish and interested in like, you know, cryptocurrency as an alternative to real fiat currency, because, you know, two things you want in any currency, cryptocurrency doesn't have right now. One, you want price stability. Um, It's very volatile. And then two, you want usability. You can't use it for anything except for, you know, know, drugs and, you know, other transactions on the, so it, it doesn't actually it's not the most useful thing right now, um, but I think it's the technology underneath it is going to have huge lasting impacts on many areas of finance. So in order to make that 
lasting what is is it going to just require like a central node or you know like what would unleash this beast in order to make it real well i just think you're you're going to see um I, I would just say each big bank is transitioning certain elements of their banking system to the blockchain that uh, they're you know the, the, all these fintechs everyone's talking about all the rise of these fintech companies but what's really happening is JP Morgan Bank of America Citi Wells Fargo PNC are investing billions and billions and billions in all these new digital technologies to allow you know the blockchain revolution and you know digital currency revolution as it applies to banking and finance to happen within those financial institutions and they could do it at scale so you're you're i think going to start to see um, what all the enthusiasts around crypto didn't want to happen, which was the reason crypto has existed, was it didn't need an intermediary like a bank, and it need, didn't need to be backed by a government. But what you're going to see is crypto is going to be highly regulated around the world, and its most important application, you know, the blockchain underneath it, is going to be co-opted by very large financial institutions, and. You know, yeah, I don't know how, it, whether it's all connected and centrally managed, but, you know, that's going to slowly happen or quickly happen, but it's going to apply to the more mundane aspects of our life. Gotcha. Cool. No, I, I've been trying to learn more about that. So I think uh, <laughs> you answered some of my questions for sure, because you're super smart. Um, and everyone has a different opinion there, and I'm certainly no expert on crypto. I don't think anybody is right now, but we can all, you know, yeah. try and try and look ahead, look around corners on that because at some point it's going to be important. Uh, AI. How about AI? Well, look, I think one day we'll look back at, you know, chat GPT and, you know, probably it's one of those moments like, you know, when, Katie, or uh, I don't know, that old clip of, uh, you know, those two morning show hosts, like talking about the internet, like what is the internet? And, you know, I, I do think, you know, AI is going to have a huge impact. I, I could tell you right now how it's applying to my business. We, we do huge audits on every painting we have, which are hundreds of paintings. And we do these write-ups and, you know, we, we write the history of the work and, you know, it's it's very painful and you know we're going to have chat gpt you know write a lot of that and then we'll quickly be able to so it's going to have huge ramifications on industries that used to be white collar like you know law firms and you know accounting firms your ai is going to revolutionize a lot of that um and i think it's going to have big impacts obviously as it is in finance and trading and so, no, I think, you know, everything from your word microprocessor to your internet search is going to, you know, have AI behind it, which just means it's going to constantly, constantly learn more about you and how to correlate things that you like to other things you may like. And pretty soon all the machines in your life are going to be linked and backed and so efficient. Um, it's, it's scary in a way, um, but sure, it's pretty interesting. Absolutely. All right. Uh, what should guys in the brotherhood be doing today from a financial perspective right now in your mind to prepare for the future? Yeah, look, I, I've always thought, you know, the stock market is the most amazing thing that could ever have been created. So we have the Dutch to thank there in the, the 17th century. I mean, if you think about it, you staying at home could buy a share in a company where thousands of people show up every single day and do everything they possibly can to increase the earnings of that company, and you could have a share of that. So why would you not at least every month try and get a small amount of your net worth to capture part of that power? of, you know, the smartest, most interesting companies that trade every single day 
And there's a history, a hundred year history of returning, you know, 12 or 13% compound. Um, it's, it's, is, it's as much of a free lunch as you'll ever get in your life. So getting exposure to the stock market as early as possible in a diversified way, I just think, you know, you'll look back 20 years hence and your, your retirement and your life will be better for it. Gotcha. Cool. All right. Next question. Red Threads. I just read this book called Love Post Work by Marcus Buckingham. Um, and he talks about his red threads, things that you get soaked into, things that you got to pull your attention away from what you're doing at some point because you get so ingrained into what you're doing. <coughs> uh, another thing he talks about is something where you are the only person that notices something in a room, in an environment. And you're like, hey, did you guys see that? And everyone's like, no, I didn't see that. For you, what? how does that work for you? Because I know you've got one. Well, I mean, the obvious thing is, you know, being enmeshed in the art market, I do notice, you know, works of art uh, in weird ways. And, you know, so in a public setting or in an airport or at a hotel, I always kind of get sucked into, you know, the art on the wall, whether it's bad art or good art. And I'm overly critical there and, you know, probably come off as a, you know, a complete snob and that's fine. But um, I don't know. I mean, on your first point, I, I do think, you know, a big weakness of mine certainly is like when to, when to turn off you know, living in your mind and in your head and kind of thinking about it. We all, everyone on this podcast, you know, whether you're a football coach or a teacher or, you know, a comedian or a, you know, a, I don't know, a financier on wall street, you know, you, you spend so much of your intellectual energy all day and it's so easy to kind of bring that home. And I think, I spend way too much time in my head around people that I should be much more engaged with both friends and family. And, you know, you let it take over your life and you know, 10 years go by and you realize like, no, I haven't called any of these people. And I, I haven't had real discussions outside of, you know, this very narrow interest I may have. And I think that's a huge risk because you lose a lot of, you know, what's really great in life. And, you know, I'm certainly guilty of that. Gotcha. Awesome. All right. Uh, what else about the, you know, strange nature of the art market? Is there anything else there that everybody needs to know about? You know, yeah, work? look, yeah. At, at the risk of being um, sort of promoting my one little piece of cinema that I've ever been involved in. Um, I, I was lucky in 2021 to be in this movie called The Lost Leonardo. It's a documentary about a painting that was in Louisiana, of all places, and in 2005 was bought for $1,700 or something like that. Well, fast forward a decade and lots of various things that happened, and the painting sold for $450 million dollars. The most gracious ever sold in the history of the world, uh, bought by the Saudis. That story is fascinating. And I think it takes you behind the scenes of how to discover an old master painting and bring it to life and attribute it to the master and do chicanery and deals and, you know, what free ports are used and how to avoid, you know, certain regulatory and how the auction houses manufacture uh, desirability and how geopolitics play into the art market because the Saudis thought they were outmaneuvering the Qataris. And so I would recommend The Lost Leonardo. It's a fun story and it really does kind of take you behind the scenes in the most absurd way on the craziest painting that had ever been um, the, the Lost Leonardo da Vinci, Salvador Mundi. Awesome. I like that. Discovering the old master painting and bringing it to life. That's pretty cool. You got to do that all the time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> no doubt. Cool. How about a uh, current recent struggle or opportunity that you're currently working through? Something that you, you know, that keeps you up at night or is there anything there that, that, that you're working on? Yeah, look, I think, 
I think for me, it's, you know, three kids and a wife in New York trying to build a startup. Um, my biggest challenges I find are not necessarily at work. They are, you know, trying to do what's best for you know, three young kids and trying to figure out how to give them the amount of energy they need and not get completely sucked into our own world. And uh, so that's my biggest issue, I think. Any uh, any key gems there that you're you're like, hey, this works right now with that? No, I'm I'm terrible at it. So I would say. You know, you all on the podcast could give me all the advice in the world on, you know, how to how to do better on that front. Gotcha. Well, keep on keeping on, brother. Yep. I think there's a, a definitely a theme there across the board on every single episode. So, all right. Uh, second to last question. And I don't know if you're, you know, totally ready for it, but I'm going to ask, what is your price of admission? So help me understand that. Uh, your price of admission, um, usually, you know, the struggle, the perseverance, climbing the mountain. What do you go back to that makes you, you know, move or, you know, um, the, the love plus work, the, um, Getting, getting your face put in the dirt, how do you get back up? How do you keep moving? What is that to you? What what do you think of when you figure out how to uh, climb over those obstacles? Yeah, no, it's, it's a really interesting thing to think about. I mean, I think, you know, I have not had huge, huge accomplishments, but I've also not had, you know, as many of the you know, the setbacks that I think of some people who've lost a family member early on or, you know, got fired early on in their career or lost a comrade or, you know, someone in you know, warfare or lost a limb. I've been very fortunate, you know, not to face a lot. of. So my struggles have always been kind of micro struggles, you know, that, you know, you know, all the boring things we all deal with. And I'm not the most self-reflective person. You know, I'm not the one who's constantly like looking in the mirror and, you know, how can I do better and better and better? And I, so I think, you know, surrounding yourself with people who can be brutally honest with you and say, Evan, you're being an idiot or Evan, this is dumb or, you know, someone that can keep you absolutely grounded or, you know, in terrible times when you're facing, you know, that absolute struggle, you know, you can call and just, you know, have a complete honest conversation with who will be there for you. There are very few people who have people like that in their life. I mean, maybe a father, a brother, a, a good friend. So I know there's people listening here who have reached out over the years and sort of, you know, in great times have given that congratulation and in down times have said, hey, it's going to get better and all's going to be good. And, you know, if you got some of those in your life, cultivate them because you know, that is super 100%. special. Yeah, that's awesome. Cool. Last question. What did you learn today? Look, I mean, this has been quite fun. I don't think I've ever actually done this. And I mean, I'm not an interesting enough person to have a forum to kind of talk about my life like this. So, you know, you forced me to actually open up a little bit and have an interesting kind of, you know, thinking about the last 20 years or so. And look, you know, if, if this is if your podcast is listened to by mostly Naval Academy guys and Naval Academy football team guys, I mean, what is a better group to have behind you? I mean, I, I don't work with many of them in my career, but I've always had a group of them to reach out to. And I've always, you know, had Mick Yakitis to chat with about football and, you know, Dan Gibbon about other things. And, you know, it's just so nice to have a group of guys that at any point in your life, you can reach out and talk to on a myriad of issues. And uh, so it's a special group here. And I, I think one thing we could do better at is really, you know, reaching out to folks in different classes. You know, I think uh, I have not been great at staying very active amongst all the different classes, you know, from the you know 80s, 90s and aughts and 
you know, the teens and, you know, getting to know guys in those classes and helping them when they come to Wall Street or New York or vice versa. And I think we, that's something I think we could all do more of. Awesome. Cool. I've already taken a few gems out of this conversation, so that's beneficial to me. So I thank you for that. Um, anything else you want to say before we close this thing out? No, it's all good. I mean, I appreciate you having me on and it's so, uh, it's exciting to know that, um, I'll be able to have this conversation and be heard by some old friends. Awesome. Cool, man. Well, I appreciate your time today. What's your wife's name? Anya. Anya. Tell Anya, thank you for your time tonight. No, I appreciate it. Because I know how that goes. So it's all good, man. Thanks so much, Tony. <laughs> Cool.